This morning's reading is taken from Genesis chapter 14, starting at verse 1. At the time when Amraphel was king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elasar, Kedoleomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, these kings went to war against Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zor. All these latter kings joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is, the Dead Sea Valley. For twelve years they had been subject to Kedoleomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Kedoleomer and the kings allied with him went out and defeated the Rephaites in Ashtaroth, Karnaim, the Zuzites in Ham, the Emites in Shaveh Kiriathaim, and the Horites in the hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran, near the desert. Then they turned back and went to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and they conquered the whole territory of the Amalekites, as well as the Amorites who were living in Hazazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor, marched out and drew up their battle lines in the valley of Sidim against Kedoleomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elasar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of tar pits, and when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of the men fell into them, and the rest fled to the hills. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food. Then they went away. They also carried off Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions, since he was living in Sodom. A man who had escaped came and reported this to Abram the Hebrew. Now Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre the Amorite, a brother of Eshcol and Aner, all of whom were allied with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them, and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions, together with the women and the other people. After Abram returned from defeating Kedoleomer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people, and keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, With raised hand I have sworn an oath to the Lord, God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, 
that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the strap of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me, to Anur, Eshkol, and Mamre. Let them have their share. Father God, thank you for your great goodness to us. Um, Thank you for the Bible that you give us not just a good way to live. You don't just give us a list of rules, um, but you show us. You show us what faith looks like. And we pray this morning as we look at one who went before us in the life of faith, as we look at Abram, that we would understand what it will mean for us today to live by faith in you. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Can we trust God? Can we trust God? Can we trust him with our lives? Can we trust him with the big things? Trust him with our very lives, our very selves. Can we trust him with the small things? Can we trust him to keep his promises? So the little things day to day. Jesus said, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things, what to wear, what to drink, what to eat, will be given to you as well. Sounds like a promise. Sounds like a good promise. Can we trust it? Can we trust God to provide for us? Do we trust God to provide for us? And can we trust God for the big things? Jesus said, John chapter 5, very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and has crossed over from death to life and will not be judged. What a promise. Those who trust Jesus will not die eternally, but will live. What a promise. Can we trust it? Do we trust it? Well, this is our fourth week following the story of Abram, later to be called Abraham, better known. And it is the story, the story of Abraham is the story of Abraham's response to God's promises. If you're following along in the Bible, um, turn back one page to page 13 where we see those promises. Uh, Verse 2, chapter 12, verse 2, we see God promised Abraham, Abram, I will make you into a great nation, many people he promises, and I will bless you. In the context of the time, I will make you rich, I will make you wealthy, I will give you many possessions. I will make your name great, you will be famous, you will be known, and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you, one man, Abraham. Those are some pretty incredible promises. 
And so the question is, can Abraham trust God? Will Abram trust God? And as we followed him week by week, well, it's been a bit up and down, hasn't it? Week one looked good. He said, yes, God, I will go. I will follow you. Um, And he leaves his land and he goes to the land that God's promised and he builds some altars and it says he called on the name of the Lord. Good week. And then the second week, he's scared of his life because they have to flee to Egypt in a famine and he says his wife is not his own and it's a huge mess and it's chaos. Bad week. Not trusting God's promises. And then last week, looking better again. They were in the land. It was a bit tight with him and Lot. And he offers Lot the best bit of the land because it seems that he trusts God to provide for him. That he's trusting that God is able to keep his promises. Will Abram trust God's promises? Well, we know from the New Testament, Abram is supposed to be an example for us of faith. This is Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients, guys like Abraham, were commended for. And Abram is um, bigged up by name, verse 4, chapter 11, verse 4 of Hebrews. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he didn't know where he was going. That's faith. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger, in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did his sons and grandson, who were heirs with him of the same promise. Abram lived by faith. He was able to see past his circumstances to trust in God's promise. But as we've seen, as we follow Abram's story, we get good days and we get bad days. So how do we know which of those are supposed to be an example for us? When should we be like Abraham? And which of those are supposed to not be an example for us? When do we very much not want to follow Abraham like his little journey down to Egypt? Well, remember a couple of weeks ago, we had a couple of points on how to interpret the Old Testament. The first was this, description is not prescription. Keeping that because it rhymes, description is not prescription. That is, just because an action is described in the Bible doesn't mean that it is prescribed, i.e. commanded, for us. Just because an Old Testament character does something doesn't mean it's good. Doesn't mean that we should do the same thing. But sometimes we should do what Abraham does. When he displays faith, then we should. So how do we know when we should follow Abram's example, and how do we know when we shouldn't follow Abram's example? Well, if you remember our second point on Old Testament interpretation, it's this. We shouldn't always look for a narrator's comment, this was good, this was bad, because most of the time, that won't be there. So we need to look at what characters do, and then look at the consequences of their actions. And up front, I'm going to slightly give the game away before we begin. This is a good week. This is a positive week. Abram is a good example for us here. Continuing the encouragement from last week where we saw that Abram seemed to be trusting God's promises of provision because he was prepared to give up the best bit of the land to his his nephew, Lot, and trust God to provide for him because God had promised him the land. And we saw God come to him again at the end of that chapter and say, Yes, Abram, 
I have promised you this land and you will receive it. That, if you like, was the consequences of that. Abram did something by faith and God came to him and reassured him in what he had done. And this week, again, I think we will see Abram trusting God's provision, but we will also see Abram trusting God's protection. This week, Abram trusts God for protection because he goes into battle against an overwhelming force because it's the right thing to do. He knows what the right thing to do is, and he goes in at risk of his life, but he trusts God to protect him. Abram trusts God for protection. And secondly, he trusts God for provision. We'll see this at the end of the passage. But Abram, rather than keeping what is rightfully his, gives it away. Again, because it is the right thing to do, because he trusts that God is going to bless him anyway. God has promised to bless him. He doesn't need to hold on to unrighteous wealth in order to bless himself. And so we see that Abram is learning. He's growing. He is walking by faith. Well, so firstly, trusting God's protection. And here we have this, well done, Lenny, crazy list of names. Um, I expect most of you are thinking you were glad that this wasn't a week you might have been asked to read. Um, all these guys, we've got um, very simply, to kind of simplify, we've got the Eastern Kings and we've got the Western Kings. And there's two battles and the Eastern Kings win both of them. So this is like a flashback. And it's a bit weird because we've been wandering along this parochial little story. Abram goes here. Abram goes there. Abram does this. Abram does that. And then all of a sudden we get this kind of at the time when Amraphel was king of Shinar and it goes through. And we find out this is like a little flashback. It's saying, okay, if you're going to understand what Abram does here, we need to know who these guys are. We need to know what's been going on. And so read with me verse 4. These latter kings, Sodom, Bersha, Shinab, the other guys, they joined forces because for 12 years they'd been subject to the big bad, Kedorlaomer. So he's our big bad guy, kind of the big boss bad guy. They'd been subject to him for 12 years, but in the 13th year they rebelled. So for 12 years they serve him, he's the guy, they send him tribute, they have to follow his rules. And 13 years in, they get together and they write, guys, we're fed up with this. It's time. I think we can take him if we work together. And they go for it. And they lose. Uh, they're not strong enough. Kedolaim and his allies defeat them. And we find out that what we're talking about here, what happens with Abraham, happens, verse 5, in the 14th year. So we've got this battle in verses 1 to 4. And the, uh, the western kings are defeated by the big bad eastern kings. And then if you were looking at a map of, um, of Israel at the time, you could work this out, uh, Canaan at the time, and you could see that effectively the winners go on this kind of like victory lap, and they kind of go north and beat up a whole load of other people, seemingly just, just for the heck of it. Um, people who are pretty tough, so like the Rephaites, we find out later they're big, scary people, um, the Zuzites, the Emites, the Horites, and then they come back, and then they beat up the Eastern Kings again. Not content with doing it once, they beat them again. But the significant bit comes in verse 11 and 12. The four kings, the winners, the eastern kings versus the, uh, the, the five kings, the four kings versus the five kings, seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah 
and all their food, then they went away. And if you remember from last week, when Lot had a choice of where to live, he looked over and saw the best bit of the land was right next to the really dodgy district of Sodom and Gomorrah. And yet he went there anyway, because the land looked great. He thought, ah, I don't really mind, I'm going to go for it anyway. And then we see this week the consequences of Lot's actions last week. Verse 12, they also carried off Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. And we even see a bit of progression there. Last week he was living near Sodom. And we find out he'd actually moved into Sodom. And the story of Lot will continue through the book of Genesis. He mostly is not an example for us to follow. Well, this then is the significance that Lot is captured. And Abram, as his dutiful uncle, thinks, right, I need to get him back. Verse 13, a man who had escaped came and reported this to Abram the Hebrew. Now, Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre the Amorite a brother of Eshcol and Aner, all of whom were allied with Abram. So he's moved to this new area, made some friends, and then someone who's escaped the battle comes and tells Abram what's happened. When Abram heard, verse 14, that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. So Abram is no longer just him and his wife and a a couple of people, his household now includes 318 trained men, i.e. men of fighting age. So therefore, if you include children, if you include men over the age of fighting, if you include um, others as well, if you include all the women and, uh, and all the children, then this is a pretty big household that Abram now has. But 318 men versus five kings it doesn't look particularly positive. It doesn't look like uh, he's going to do particularly well. But don't think kings kind of nations. It's more like kind of tribal kings. So like the local kings, the tribe, the village. However, this is still a small force against an overwhelming force. Abram is going up against it here. How does it go? Verse 18, verse 15 rather. During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them and he routed them pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. And it's quite poetic that effectively it's like he is chasing them out of his land. He chases them to the north and sees them off, fleeing into the distance. So on the one hand, we've got good tactics. At night, he divides his men, he goes on a raid, and he beats them off into the distance. But it is still a victory of a small force against a much bigger force. And if Abram was still the man that he'd been back in chapter 12 when he went down into Egypt, I think it's likely he wouldn't have had the courage to do this. But he trusts that God is able to protect him as he does what is right, as he goes at risk of his life for the sake of his relative. If you remember chapter 12, he was willing to throw his wife under the bus in order to enrich himself. But here he goes at the risk of his life for the sake of his nephew. Abram is learning and Abram is growing. And Abram is learning to trust God. Verse 16, he recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions together with the women and the other people. Abram trusted God for protection. 
And so here we see faith looks like doing the right thing, even when it's scary, and trusting God to protect us as we do so. Faith looks like doing the right thing and trusting God to work out the consequences. Again, contrast with chapter 12. Abraham should have had great confidence that he wouldn't die because he's got this promise, you'll become a great nation. And yet, it seems that now he has learnt that lesson. Now, most of us won't be called to go into battle to defend our friends or relatives. But we may be called to speak up for someone who is spoken against at work. We may be called to stand up against the bullies for those who are right. To speak up for those who have no voice because we have a voice. As Christians, we may be called to stand up and say what God has said is right and risk the consequences. Again, in our nation, we're unlikely to face death for this, but we may be likely to face dislike, mockery for being known as a Christian. Simply, for some of us, step one might just be letting our friends, colleagues, know that we're a Christian at all. And that feels risky. That feels dangerous. Or it might be taking that step to speak to someone else about their need for Christ. That if we put our trust in Christ, then there is a promise of eternal life. That in Christ, and only in Christ, as we'll be thinking about after the service at the question time, only in Christ is there salvation from judgment. Is there an escape from eternal life? And just for a moment, imagine that you were bold enough, maybe crazy enough. This is probably not the best way of doing it. But just imagine if you did stand up in the middle of your school, office, workplace, a bus, a tube, and you said to people, hey guys, I just want to let you know there's only one way to be saved, and it's through the Lord Jesus. If you're imagining that, you're probably feeling some sort of fear right now. Again, I'm not saying that's the best approach. But it's quite scary in our society today because that kind of view is so unpopular. As I say, we're unlikely to risk our lives, but we may need to risk our reputations to be faithful for Christ. And particularly as public morality moves further and further and further and further away from biblical morality, when we say God has said that there is a way that he calls his people to live, not even to say everyone should live this way, we don't say that everyone should live God's way, but if we're following Christ, then there's a way to live, then again that can make us very unpopular. Will we trust God with the consequences of when we do what's right, and it's risky. We don't have a promise that we won't be killed. We don't have a promise that things will go the way we want. But we do have a promise of eternal life. This is Luke chapter 12, verse 4. Jesus says, 
I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Don't be afraid of those who kill the body. I don't know if you heard the stories come again and again. Um, another Nigerian pastor um, captured by Boko Haram, the Reverend Lawan Andami. And there was a video that they released of him, as is often the case. But he didn't beg for his life. He said this on the video. I have never been discouraged because all the conditions that one finds himself in is in the hand of God. I still believe that God is alive and will make all arrangements. And hear this, he says, by the grace of God, I hope to be together with my wife and my children and all my colleagues. But if that opportunity is not granted, maybe it is the will of God. That was the first week of January, and on the 21st of January, he was beheaded. He said in the video, don't cry, don't worry, but thank God for everything. There is a man who trusted God for protection. Jesus says, they can kill you. If we're faithful for Christ, again in our nation unlikely, but if we're faithful for Christ in this world, they can kill us, but they can only kill us. That's all that can be done to us. And our eternity in Christ is safe forever. Well, much more quickly, trusting God's provision. We get these two very different characters at the end of the chapter, the king of Sodom and the king, uh, and, and we get this Melchizedek. Uh, the king of Sodom, well, we know that he's uh, not a good guy and because we know the great wickedness that's going on in Sodom. And then we get this other guy, Melchizedek. And Melchizedek comes and he is generous. He puts out bread and wine, whereas Sodom comes and he makes demands. He demands, he says, give me the goods. You can keep the people, but, sorry, you can keep the goods, give me the people. I'll let you keep the goods. But as the victor in this battle, Abram had a right to keep the goods. Anyway, they were his by right as the victor. And so the king of Sodom is not being generous. It's almost as if he's slightly grudging that Abram is the one who's got the victory and he's been defeated. And Abram had every right to say, no, I have earned these. They are my right. And if he was still trying to grasp on God's blessing for himself to make himself wealthy, he could have said, well, I'm going to keep these for myself to make myself wealthy. But he says, no, I'm not going to touch this. You take it because I don't want you thinking that you have made me wealthy. Verse 23, I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the strap of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. Abram will not receive unrighteous wealth. He will trust God for his provision. What might they look like for us? Well, the simple ones, 
not cheating on our tax return, not getting in on a slightly dodgy get-rich-quick scheme where that's one of our mates who's got, I've got a way to make money and we know it's a bit dodgy, or investing in things that hurt others. Again, to trust God for provision is to do what is right and trust that God will work it out. And we see in Abram's giving to the king Melchizedek a tenth of everything, again we see God trusting, Abram trusting God for provision. One way that we trust God for provision is in our giving to the church, in our giving to God's causes. It's a way of saying, God, I could use this money for all sorts of useful things. I could spend it on myself. But I trust that you will provide for me and I give it to you in your service. Can we trust God to look after us? Well, we can. As Abram saw by faith the promises of God and lived by faith and not by sight, we too can be sure. Melchizedek is an interesting character. On one level, he's just a guy here who is a guy who's not uh, part of Abram's family and yet still is blessed. But as we look forward to the New Testament, we see that, a- that Melchizedek is, in the sense of being both priest and king, he is a forerunner of Christ. And Hebrews chapter 5 tells us that because of Jesus' faithfulness, God made Jesus both priest and king for us. Because of his perfect sacrifice, Jesus is now our priest interceding for us and our king, our protector. And therefore, because of Christ, because of his work, life, death and resurrection, we know what Abram didn't. We know that the victory is secure, and so we, even more than Abram, can go confidently into our lives, doing what is right, trusting God for the consequences, because Christ is both our King and our Priest. Let's pray that we would have that kind of trust in our own lives. Father God, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is king and priest. He is our provider and our protector. And we pray that we would, like Abram, walk by faith and not by sight. We'd see past the things of this world to what you have promised for us. Absolutely, certainly. And that we would walk in that. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.